No Ordinary Women, the podcast where two ordinary broads chat about unordinary women, the good, the bad, and the bad shit crazy. Hey, bros. Good to be back in the studio, girl. Hey. So, you guys, we just got back. Barely even unpacked. Well, I'm not all the way unpacked yet. I just finished unpacking last night. Uh, From Obsessed Fest. It was so much fun. The first one. We were partying the whole weekend, except for Sunday. (laughs) Because Lynn got sick and ruined it. I did. I did. So one of the things things I was so excited about with Obsessed Fest was uh, the drag brunch. I love drag shows. And I was so excited for, like, the closing ceremonies and the drag brunch. And I woke up Sunday morning very, very sick. It was not COVID, but I was very sick. Um, And let me just tell you how bad it is to be sick in a shitty hotel. It's not the greatest. Yeah, our hotel was the worst ever. It was and it, so dirty and nasty. It w- And it was a Hilton property, which is, you know, uh, honest to God, because it was a Hilton property. Um, it wasn't where Obsessed Fest was. It was another um, hotel in Columbus. But um, because it was a Hilton property, I didn't even look at the reviews because I feel like I shouldn't have to on a Hilton property. But um, I think the only person there that was amazing was John the head of engineering, the director of engineering. He Shout was out to amazing. John. He was he so nice. He came and fixed our toilet on yeah. our tub, and, and then he tub. offered to buy us lunch. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, as I was in the bed with, like, literally my head completely under the comforter dying, I was like, no thanks. He was yeah, like, he can was I bring so her sweet. tea? And he, he was su- super sweet. So shout out to John. Um, but we had a lot of fun at Obsessed Fest. We got to meet um, the Let's Go to Court Girls. Oh! exciting it was like movie stars for me <laughs> i love them so but we much. did miss um their recording which sucked yeah because they rescheduled it and we it was it happened before we got there on friday so like right before we got there yeah and then we missed the other thing that they were in which also sucked yeah <laughs> but I know that... we still got to meet them at the meet and greet which yes was nice. we did and if you look at our insta or our facebook you'll see pictures of them and um, it's like we're old friends. Now we're getting together with them next weekend. They're coming here. They invited us to their pool. Just kidding. Men's <laughs> in dream world. But they were so much fun. They were. They were really nice. Yeah. And we met a lot of interesting people at Obsessed Fest. There was definitely, you know, a very eclectic group of people there, yes. I'd say. I mean, every age, every walk of life, every everything. It was kind of cool. And I had to go to the drag brunch alone because of Lynn. And I, I have to say, Rose, I was really proud of you for going alone. I know. So I really Ro- didn't want to. But. Yeah. Rose <laughs> is not the kind of person that would do something that alone like that alone ever. And when I woke up and I was feeling sick and I'm like, okay, this isn't a hangover sick. This is a, um, my body's like, uh, hell to the gnaw for whatever you ate yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I felt so bad and I was going to try and rally and go just because I knew that she wasn't going to probably go to the drag brunch by herself. And I got up and tried to move around a little bit and moving around proved to not be a good thing. Yeah. For me. <laughs> and we had to walk like 15 minutes to get to the venue. So, um, yeah, that wouldn't yeah. have worked for me. There was a porta potty along the way. But... Yeah, that wouldn't have worked for me. <laughs> uh, no, I actually would have used it for sure. <laughs> yeah. But I don't, even know if I, I don't even know if I would have made it to the porta jotty. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was super proud of you. I was telling... Um, who is it? I think I was telling my mom how proud of you I was that you went by yourself because it's very much out of your comfort zone. So I know, I was like, it was. She's growing up right I before just, my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> I just got some mimosas and 
enjoyed myself. I didn't really talk to anyone, but a little fun fact is that um, when you go anywhere with me, one, I get the shittiest service ever. Yes. Two, I get the worst seats ever. So while I was in bed, like close to death, not really, but I'm being dramatic as I do best. And um, Rose sends me pictures of her like four feet from the stage, sitting literally <laughs> next to the... we had shitty seats all week. All, all week, weekend. All weekend. Like, I literally... We sat down the second time, they like... And they were sitting people that were in line after us in much better seats than us. And I just like went off on the people seating. And they're like, oh, we're just trying to do it the best we can. I'm like, well, you're not doing a good job of it. I was very frustrated. <laughs> but... Um, I've done events, I've worked in hospitality my whole life, and I just know ways to do things like that. So it's very frustrating when I see people doing it like an ass backwards way. So, but that being said, I still had an amazing time. Um, I just wish people with big hair would <sighs> fasten that stuff to their head when they go to something like that, because the girl in front of us had really big hair and I couldn't see anything. <laughs> I was very frustrated. <laughs> so anyway, um, cause I'm just jealous too, because I have uh, no hair. So maybe yeah, I'll buy bald. a wig next time, but <laughs> boof on hairdo and be like, look at me blocking everyone's view. <laughs> so anyway, That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, it was very fun. Very fun. And we, you know, we learned some stuff and we definitely know that next year uh, when we go, it'll be a whole, you know, we'll go about it in a whole different way. Yeah. We want to actually try to stay at the hotel. Yeah. Or at least one. like there was literally four hotels within right. like a half a block. And the fact that we could not get a single room at any of those hotels, even while booking our room within three days or four days of right. the of the dates of the and it festival, was very far in advance. Wasn't it like six months ago that we did it? Lo- Rose, it was Lowe's. Lowe's. Um, <laughs> you can call me that. Rose, it was at least I say I feel like it was closer to a year ago because I feel like it's been. Oh, really? Coming. Has it been that long? When did you go to Disney? February. So when you got back from Disney, you're like, I want to travel some more. Let's go to a fe- Obsessed Fest. Oh, okay. So that was February. So February. Yeah, it was nine months ago. Eight, eight months ago. exactly once <laughs> to Ohio since then. Yeah. So it's been, that was eight months ago. Yeah. So it, it was a long time. I mean, the fact that yeah, there was nothing crazy. going on. So, but it was, overall, it was a good time. We have to make some follow-up calls to the hotel for the someone charging our room because we stayed, ironically, in room 420. So I guess somebody thought it was funny to charge their food in the restaurant to room 420. And uh, yeah, it wasn't us. So they said, oh, we assure you it's been removed from your bill. Um, No, it's not. Yeah. So we get to the hotel and we get to our room. And it's dirty. Like, it looks like somebody started cleaning it and didn't finish. There was pee in the toilet. The linens were stripped off the bed and they were on the floor. And we were like, so Lynn calls down. You called down, right? She calls down to the front desk. And the lady argues with her about it. She says, well, I have it marked off as clean and ready. And I'm like, well, I can guarantee you it's not ready because there's pee in the toilet. (laughs) And she said, well, I get." so I was just like, whatever. So I just, I can't do this. So I went down to the front desk and... Uh, went back and forth with this woman, and everything I said to her, she would have an answer for. But then I would say, well, wait, that's just what I exactly what I did. And she's like, no. And then she would change her answer. Like, one of the things I said was that, well, I thought I had an upgrade. And she goes, no, that's only for gold, for silver members. And I said, well, I am a silver member, which isn't that big of a deal. And she said, oh, it's for gold members. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then she said, I said, well, can you just move us to a different room? It's like a, we paid for a double suite because um, Rose doesn't like to spoon with me <laughs> for some reason. I do, but not this weekend. Not this week. Okay. So I... the. Double suite. I said, you just have another double suite to put us in because I can't, you know, we've been driving for almost eight hours. I just really want to 
you know, lay down in the bed. You right, know. because the woman told us to sit there and wait. She was going to call somebody to clean it. And yeah. I And I was sitting there for at least 10 minutes while you were downstairs and yeah. nobody came. I mean. Well, right. And also, like you said, do you really want to sit there and have somebody and watch somebody clean right. your room? Because you know they're going to do it half-assed because they're, they're like, it's but, awkward because right. you're there. And so I said to her, I was like, so just put us in a different room. And I said, I don't even care if we have the river view. I just don't, you know, just put us in a different room. And she said, we don't have any any other double suites. We have double standards. And I was like, no, we paid for a suite. I'm not going to be in a standard, even though this hotel is a suites hotel. And she said, well, I just don't have any. And I was like, how could you have some at this uh, ridiculous rate that you said I'd have to pay for a Riverview? But then you say you don't have one when I say just put me in a different room. And um, so then the manager walks out and he says, is everything okay? And I said, I just want a clean room. (laughs) But I walked away. And so he gave us a new room. And we had a smidge of the river view. If you put and your face up against the glass and leaned real well, hard. You could see the river if the glass was clean, but the, the glass was like, we couldn't silky. even tell it was raining. We wanted to look out because it said it was raining. The weather app said it was raining and we looked out and we couldn't tell. We thought because it was the raining, window but it was so dirty. <laughs> so dirty. Oh my god! It was. That's I the, guess. It, well, it could be. Honestly, though, I mean, I'm not. I'm not making excuses, but it could have been salt from the from the river. Like, because it's. Well, would that be connected to any salt water? No, that's fresh water. No, yeah, that would have been. I'm very much fresh, a ge- no. uh, very much into geography. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> like North Carolina. My brother-in-law's like, oh my god, Lynn, you don't know anything about geography. <laughs> no, but yeah. So it's um yeah so. It's, um, I don't know, the windows were just like, it, it reminded me of like being in a beach house, the way the windows were like really dirty, like it was salty. Yeah, but and like so, it's a hotel and they should clean their windows Oh my God. So yeah, it was, it was, it was quite the shit show, no pun, pun intended, but. It was. <laughs> and then we, like, I literally wanted to just leave on Sunday and drive home, but I knew there was like no way. No way. Because I was sick up until I went to bed. Yeah. Like. I ate like some soup and then I ate some crackers and I was fine until I started moving around. Like I tried to start getting my stuff packed so we could leave early next morning. And as I moved around, I'm like, oh, no, the tummy is not liking this. Yeah, I had a nice time laying around. I never get to do that. So it was nice laying around. We watched Forrest Gump. All yeah, of Forrest that, Gump. Oh we both God, took a nap like during it and it woke up and it was still, still on. We're like, oh my God, this movie's never going to end. <laughs> what else did we watch? We watched something uh, Brides. Is Bridesmaids. 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 Oh, that, oh that my God, so funny. that is so funny. And then we watched funny. some 48 Hours, I think. Oh, we watched like a whole series yeah. of 48 Hours. And then hours, Jeopardy yeah. and Will of Fortune. Yeah. <laughs> we did some serious, like, awful. The, the TVs in the hotel were not smart TVs either, which is like complete bullshit. I know. And um, so we... So we had limited channels. Yeah. We got to watch all the, the old stuff we would have yeah. watched. It was fun. Back in the but, day. Um, so next year, we will be on the main stage at Obsessed Fest. <laughs> um, Patrick will be begging us to join, I'm sure. Of course. Um, no, I'm just kidding, because we're not actors, and they are actors, so they have way more stamina than we do. But um, it was super fun, though. It was very fun. It was really cool seeing and all And they the- were all really nice, like... Everyone seems so, everyone is really nice there. Well, and they're just like, it's funny because they're just like normal people. I don't know that they're they're starstruck yet because after this, I feel like they may become starstruck. Yeah, that's true. Right? (laughs) That's true. What was was the Memphis, what was his name? Damien Eccles. Oh, Damien Eccles was there. We saw um, talk with him and that was pretty interesting. And it got me, I've definitely seen... Or I don't know if I've watched the movie or the documentary or if I've watched, listened to the podcast about the Memphis, the West Memphis 7. I, three. Three. Oh, my God. The West Memphis 3. But um, I started listening to it again, and it's unbelievable. And the stuff that's going on with that case is crazy. Yeah, it this was is, 
listening was, to him, it, it brought tears to my eyes, yeah, listening was, to what was going on. And, I mean, this man served all that time in jail, and the state of Arkansas will not test DNA that they have now that there's the available testing to... Um, for no reason No, re- There's no reason. They just don't want to. And even though um, people have said that they would pay for the state to test it so the state wouldn't have to pay for it, the state's still like, no, yeah. we don't care. If he's uh, not, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, exonerated. Exonerated right. of his charges, yeah. which, or the three of them are not exonerated. Right. They don't care. They They're like, oh, you served your time. You're fine. Right. Yeah. And and there's a killer out there that killed three little boys. I mean, oh my God. what else has that person done in the last Oh my gosh. And they probably continued years. to do it. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's awful. And the way they were treated when they went to court for the um, DNA testing yeah. was awful. They oh t- my gosh. about that. Jillian and Damien and Bob Ruff. Yeah. It was pretty, it was pretty scary. Yeah. So. Um, but anyway, listen to that. That's a pretty interesting podcast. That's, um, Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is uh, a really, really interesting good, yeah. podcast. So definitely listen to that. So you ready to get After rolling? After you listen to this. After you listen to us. Yeah. We're more Make important. sure you guys go and give us a rating on everything you're listening to us on. Everything and anything. Five Especially stars. Op- Apple Podcasts. No shitty one or two stars. If you're going to do that, just don't listen to us. Right. Five stars because we know we're fabuloso. <laughs> And um, and then you have to leave a comment. For some reason, the algorithm in Apple makes you um, the comments help your help your status, help you move up in the algorithm. Yeah. So what we want to see is everybody to just tell us their favorite bra brand or jockstrap strap brand, whatever. <laughs> so there's Penelope in the background. Yeah, she's barking. We still at haven't gotten into nothing. our official studio. Our studio right now is my bedroom covered in blankets. So um, hopefully next week we'll be in our, our real studio. There might be a killer out there trying to get us. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe the mailman. Or nobody. Nope, she's not barking at anybody. So, it was autumn of 2005, and the residents of Mooresville, North Carolina, were shaken by an apparent accidental murder of a police officer that would have an ominous shift into the twisted secrets of the Witherspoon family. Ominous. ominous. I said it correct. I felt like it didn't that say correct. That sounded weird. I was yeah, going to correct ominous. you, but then I think you're right. Don't correct me, bitch. I was going to correct you. We could have fucking rumble. <laughs> <laughs> the residents soon discovered that the family's white picket fence was collapsing. Our white picket fence, when I was married, just started rotting and falling apart. I bet it did. It did. It did. It wasn't a picket you fence. You sure it was ever It was a up? horse fence. It was a two-year-old <laughs> fence. But it did, it did start rotting pretty quickly. Um, okay. So Misty and Quinn Witherspoon had been married for 11 years and had three young children. However, their marriage was rocky due to serious financial difficulties. We wouldn't know anything about that. No, never. <laughs> We're both rich. We're rich. We're so wealthy. <laughs> Quinn Witherspoon had been with the Concord, North Carolina Police Department since 1997 and later became a canine police officer. Additionally, he was the main treasurer and deacon at their Baptist church in Mooresville, North Carolina. Misty had a spending problem, and for some crazy reason, they let her be the assistant treasurer at her church. Oh, dear God. That's, Who made that decision? That does not sound good. Well, she's married to a cop, so they were probably like, oh, of course we can trust her. In 2004, she embezzled $18,000 from the church. When the theft was discovered, the church met with Misty and Quinn privately and requested that Misty pay back the money. In return, they would not press charges or file any police reports. Uh, Misty's theft was completely covered by the church, covered up by the church, in order to protect Quinn's job as a police officer. I'm not sure why I talked like that for they that wanna... minute. So they didn't? Do anything? They didn't press charges. Because they didn't want it to, like, embarrass anyone? Right. They just oh said, goodness. you need to pay us back, and then okay. and then right. we won't do anything. Because he was a cop. Yeah. And it was embarrassing for him. 
When Quinn discovered his wife was embezzling from the church, he cashed in $12,000 of his retirement benefits and paid the church back. As you can imagine, this was a great source of shock and embarrassment to him, being a police officer. Also, his parents, I can't even imagine this, um, gave the church another $6,000 to save face for their son. Oh my gosh, so her, his parents knew too? His parents, I guess, I don't know if his parents went to the same church or not, but they, oh, that's maybe so he told his parents. So Why he, do people do that? Like, you're going to get caught. I have no, I guess no it's idea. like they can't control it. Well, I think, I think she had no control. It starts no with like a dollar and then it's like, I didn't get caught. And then yeah. it's $5. Oh, look, it's and, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think that's exactly what it is. Exactly the way it is. Surprisingly, Misty was responsible for paying the household utility bills and mortgage. But there were times when she intentionally wouldn't pay the bills so she could shop with the money. Oh my gosh. She had a shopping problem. She couldn't keep any money in her hands. They like her money was burning holes in her pockets. She could not do it. So why did he leave her in charge of paying the bills? I guess maybe he didn't know. I, she had a he problem? Didn't, I don't think he realized it. Yeah, that point. right. So Quinn had to borrow money from other people to pay delinquent bills. Ugh, I can't even imagine this poor guy. You know I'm not a big fan of cops, but I feel sorry for this one. I know, that poor guy. Misty also failed to pay the joint credit card bills that were in both Misty and Quinn's names. Eventually, the credit card accounts became extremely delinquent, and Quinn was left with having to pay off the debts with a loan set up on monthly installments from his paycheck. Dude, this poor guy. I like, know. I'm just like, She's just fucking him over. So in March of 2005, he went to his credit card. I'm sorry. He went to his credit union to discuss delinquent credit card, his delinquent credit card account he had discovered. He's just like, oh, look at this. I have a delinquent credit card. He knew his wife has been, had, a spending, had a spending problem and he was concerned about the monthly bills not being paid on time. Quinn took Misty off his credit card account and reduced his spending, reduced his spending limit. He also took out a personal loan to pay off some debt and set up monthly payments directly from his paycheck so that he did not have to worry about Misty taking the money or paying in the installments late. I think I already said that. I might have written that No, twice. you didn't say that. Oh, okay. Uh, Quinn had the credit union manager review his credit report with him. Unfortunately, he found out there were several credit cards and finance companies listed on the report, which he was not familiar with. Oh, this poor guy. Yeah. Um, when Misty was home, she would carry the home phone around. This was back when they had just like a cordless phone. Right. Carry the home phone around with her in the house so she could answer the phone and hide the collection calls from <laughs> Quinn. <laughs> That's what I was thinking when he said she would carry the phone. Yeah. I was like, she definitely doesn't want the collectors calling. Oh, my God. Missy's best friend, Les Leslie Berg Burgess was aware that the Witherspoons were in financial trouble. When Quinn and Misty would go out of town, Leslie would come over to their house, write down messages from the answering machine on a piece of paper, delete the message, and put the papers in the microwave so Quinn wouldn't see the collection calls. Oh, my gosh. Eight to 15 collection calls a day. Oh, my God. Eight to 15. A day? A day! Oh, that, a day! That makes me, like, sweat just thinking about Holy it. Holy collection company, Batman. <laughs> I, like, that would, I mean, the anxiety that no that has kidding. to be giving her. Even though her husband and in-laws dug her out of the hole with the church, within a year, she managed to embezzle $100,000 from the church reserves. How she Wait, still she had st access? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm like, what in the serious What? Was she still the treasurer? I have no idea. That's crazy. This included more than more than twenty five thousand dollars she pocketed from the collection plates. <gasps> so she was just outright stealing. You know, we all like as that bowl's going around or the plates going around. You're like, oh, I'd love to have all that money, but nobody does it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like, what the heck? 
In March of 2005, Quinn discovered that their house was about to go into foreclosure because his wife has been secretly taking the mortgage payments and using them to shop. Why Why was she still in charge of them? I have no idea why he would let her pay anything at this point. On one occasion, he had to beg his supervisor to borrow money to make the mortgage payment to keep the house out of foreclosure. Oh, my gosh. This poor I feel, guy. I feel so sorry for him. But at the same time, like, why aren't you doing something yeah, about Yeah, I feel it? like he must be, like, he must be, maybe she, like, wore the pants in the family. And I that sounds really sexist. But maybe she was, like, the dominant one in the relationship. Right, yeah. And he kind of was, like, but being a cop, you don't imagine him being that right, way. But he could but be, like, know. just, like, sweet and, like. <gasps> By the end of August 2005, Misty had gotten hopelessly behind on the couple's bills due to her wild spending. Ending, it turned out that she had pawned her wedding ring in an attempt to keep bill collectors at bay. On August 22, 2005, the Witherspoons received a delinquent notice from Duke Power stating that they had owed $894.02. On their electric bill? On their electric bill. Oh my gosh. This is making me like have so much anxiety. I know. I am too. Like (laughs) when I was writing this, I was like, oh, I could feel the tightness in my chest because I definitely have gone through points where I've had people calling me from collections. Like when I was living alone, it was just Chris and I. And I was like, had collection companies calling me and stuff, but never to this extent. Yeah, you weren't like spending it all on. No. Whatever she's spending it on. Feeding my kids. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So on. So that was on August 22nd. On the 6th of September, 2005, they received a disconnect notice. Go figure. Did they have kids, did you say? Yeah, they have three kids. Oh, my gosh. So Misty called Duke Power around 1.36 p.m. on the 13th of of December, 2005, promising to pay the delinquent bill. Duke Power stated the bill needed to be paid on that day or the power would be turned off the following day. At the same time that Misty was talking to Duke Power, Quinn was napping on the couch in the living room. The oldest child was at school, and the two youngest children, which are twins, were asleep in their room. At approximately 2.08, the Airdell, I think it's Airdell, um, Airdell, Airdell County, maybe Airdell, County 911 call center received a call from Misty saying that she was bringing Quinn's service service pistol to him when she tripped and fell and the gun discharged. Misty told a dispatcher that when the gun went off, it shot Quinn in the head. The call was transferred immediately to the Mooresville Police Department dispatcher who contacted the contacted Officer Corey Barnett. First on the scene was Officer Barnett. He entered the house and walked walked into the living room. Immediately he saw Quinn laying on the couch face down. Quinn's pistol was on the floor beside the couch, along with a yellow children's book. Misty was facing the couch, standing about five feet away from the ca- standing about five feet away, with blood on her shorts and shirt. She told Officer Barnett, "I was bringing him his gun, and I tripped on something and accidentally shot him in the head." Oh my gosh! Yeah, right, bitch. Come on. You know you want his insurance money. Yeah. Officer Barnett checked Quinn for a pulse, but noticed that the blood on Quinn's head was already dry or drying. Sorry. Oh. He then took Misty and the kids outside. In the front yard, Trooper Jason Fleming with the North Carolina Highway Patrol was friends with Quinn and beelined it straight to the house when he heard the calls on the radio. Trooper Fleming went went up to Misty and let her know that he was there for her because he knew the family. She told him that she had accidentally shot Quinn. She was she said that she was getting something off a shelf and when Quinn and Quinn's gun fell on the floor, the gun didn't look safe to her. So she was carrying it to Quinn to make sure it was safe before she put it back. She slipped on a book and fell against Quinn and the gun went off. She continued to repeat her story to Trooper Trooper Fleming verbatim two or three times. Which, you know, like on one hand, it could be like a nervous, like just kept saying what happened because she was in shock. Right. Yeah. Or was she trying to tell herself the story? Like, no, I didn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I didn't do anything. So while Trooper Fleming... 
that's a hard word to say. Trooper Fleming was outside talking with Misty. The EMTs arrived and went into the house. They checked Quinn's carotid carotid artery. Sorry, carotid carotid. I can't say that carotid artery for a pulse, and Quinn was sadly dead. Detective Todd Markham, a colleague of Quinn's with the Mooresville Police Department, arrived at the house and saw Misty sitting in the front yard with blood on her shirt and hands. When Detective Markham entered the house, Officer Burnett advised him of the situation. He asked the EMTs to leave the house so they could do it. They could secure the scene for processing. He was like, something is up here. Oh, he knew? I think he did. Yeah. I think he did. Um, did he know the family? That's the one that knew the family? Uh, he was the first one on the scene. Oh, okay. No, the other guy was He just the, yeah. was suspicious. He just was like, something's not right here. So um, during their walkthrough, Detective Markham noticed Quinn's duty belt, his, um, you know, his police belt, and some other gear on the floor of the hallway bathroom. When other officers arrived, Detective Markham went outside to talk with Misty. He asked her to come with him to the police station for an interview about what had happened in the house. While driving to the station, Detective Markham noticed some blood on Misty's foot and on her shorts. During the interview, Misty told Detective Markham that Quinn kept his gun in a holster of his belt and kept his and kept his gun belt in the hallway bathroom closet. She said that she had been looking in the closet for some lotion, and as she was looking through the basket on the back of the shelf, she pulled it forward to see into it better, and Quinn's gun fell in, fell out of its holster. Both the gun and the belt fell out of the closet onto the floor. She thought the flashlight on the gun might have broken and decided to take the gun to her husband to make sure everything was functioning properly before putting it back. Okay, lady, you're digging in the back of a closet to get a basket out. Right. And a gun is in front of you, blocking your way. Would you not just move Would you the not gun move the, the gun right. just to be safe? And why are we keeping a gun in a bathroom closet well, when like, we have three little kids? I know. It is up high. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess it was up high. And but so they still, couldn't get to like, it. I mean, I What I about know. a safe? But the thing is, is that if some if a bottle of hairspray is in front of a basket and you're digging in a right, closet, you're going to move, move it. it. Right. Like, hello? Yeah. If there's a gun, you're sh- for sure going to move it. <sighs> so anyway... She said she picked up the gun, carrying it away from herself in her right hand. She had walked about halfway across the living room when she slipped on a book and started stumbling forward. She fell into Quinn and her and heard a gunshot. She looked down and saw blood coming from Quinn's mouth and ears. She began looking. Uh, she began looking. Sorry, I, I tapped something on my computer and it moved everything. <laughs> she began looking for the phone and dropped the gun near the love seat next to the couch when she found the phone and the in the cushion. She said she put her right hand over the wound on the back of Quinn's head and stayed on the phone till the police arrived. Detective Markham wrote out a statement of what Missy had told him. She read it and then signed it. Detective Markham photographed the blood drops on Missy's feet and hands and gave Detective Markham her clothes. After Missy left the police station with her family, Detective Markham listened to the 911 call. You ready for this? <laughs> yeah. Instead of immediately requesting help, Missy Misty initially described bringing the gun to her husband, tripping and falling into her husband, and the gun going off. When the operator asked Misty about what type of gun had been involved, there was approximately 15 seconds of silence, during which time there were sounds of doors opening and closing and something falling and hitting the floor. Oh, my gosh. Detective Markham then went back to the Witherspoon's home. He and the other officers performed a walkthrough of the house based on what Misty had told Detective Markham. The medical examiner arrived. After the police finished processing the scene, the medical examiner and the police rolled Quinn's body off the couch onto the floor. As they were rolling the body, a shell casing that had been struck that had been stuck to Quinn's right arm fell onto the couch and rolled onto the floor. 
So there was a casing. Okay. Okay. In the pillow that had been under Quinn's head, which was face down, they found a bullet. Detective Markham was surprised by the location of the shell casing because Quinn's service weapon was a right ejecting semi-automatic pistol. So it should have been the shell casing should have been on the other side. Oh, okay. Based on Misty's statement that she had been standing in the middle of the front of the couch with the gun on her right in her right hand, if it discharged, and the fact that Quinn's head was resting on the left side of the couch, the police had expected to find the shell casing towards Quinn's feet and not toward his head. The next day... September 14, 2005, the investigation, the investigating officers went back to the house to do a reenactment of what happened because they believed there were inconsistencies between the physical evidence and Misty's story, particularly the location of the shell casing and the blood flow patterns, including Quinn's head was not face down when he was shot. So my thing is, like, why do these people who kill, like, their husbands or whatever, why do they not do it better? Like, if... She, so she probably really went up to Maybe him and shot him in class, the head. Rose. Maybe you should start <laughs> Maybe a class. I should. Maybe you should start a class. Let I mean, me these people are so stupid. Wrong. I mean, I guess. Kill your husband. You got to do it the right way. <laughs> but at least, like, tell the story, like. I have a story and stick to it. Right. Or, like, if you're going to be out in the middle of the living room and you're going to shoot him, then actually do that. Because they're going to know if you went up to him and shot him. It's. It's like, and she, she should know that she's married to a police officer. Well, she was probably take a collection call in the middle of the whole thing. I know. So that's how true. you know what is she just did? The phone's ringing off the hook. <laughs> she's doing a promise to pay. Oh while my she's god! Holding... And she had three kids. How does she handle it? No, I can't even imagine. The reenact the reenactment didn't resolve the officer's concern. So they asked on the twenty third of September for Misty to make another written statement as to what happened. So on October 3rd, 2005, and again on October 5th, 2005, the police interviewed Misty at the police station. During the October 5th interview, Misty told the police a different version of the events. Imagine that. Oh, yeah, shocker. She claimed that she had intended to kill herself, Rose. Oh, but it accidentally shot her husband. Bless her heart. (laughs) She explained that at about 1.30 on September 13th, she had a conversation with Duke Power about their bill, which was several months overdue. She stated that after that, when she was looking through the bathroom closet for the lotion and the gun fell out, she saw that as a sign and picked up the gun and went outside. She went into a workshop off the back of the house and was going to shoot herself, but Quinn's canine dog, Tank, came in and would not stop nudging her. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Don't kill yourself. Kill my dad. I don't yeah, think so. Right. I don't think so. She went back into the house and was standing in the middle of the back side of the couch where Quinn was sleeping. She was praying and... And her legs got weak, so she put her hands on the back of the couch for support. Oh, my God. This she lady is awful. <laughs> she said so she one... accidentally shot him while she was praying? No, no, this is even better. So she said one of the family's cats jumped up on the back oh of the couch God. and ran across her arms, causing her to pull the trigger. Oh, my God. Lynn. The cat killed him. What is wrong with these people? <laughs> she claimed that she did not tell the police what happened when they arrived because she believed that they would take her children away if they the thought cat she, to go to jail. That she was, yeah, the cat was going to go to jail. <laughs> they were going to take the cat to the pound. Cat to cat jail? They were afraid they, that they would take her children away if they thought she was suicidal. Detective Markham asked Misty to repeat what had happened with the cat. And she said, although the cat did run across her hand, that was probably not why she pulled the trigger. Probably because she wanted to kill her husband. Yeah, I think she pulled the trigger because she wanted to kill her husband. (laughs) She said that she did not know why she had pulled the trigger. When she was asked about the location of the shell casing, she said that after she heard the gunshot and was walking around the head of the couch to find the phone, she almost stepped on it. So she picked it up. It was still warm, warm and she tossed it onto Quinn's body laying on the couch. What? What? Like, oh, this is oh, this is a mess here. Let me throw it on the couch. Oh, (laughs) what a fucking mess here. Like, what the hell? 
fuck? Oh my god. <gasps> Misty was arrested on the 5th of October. Imagine yeah, that. That's shocking. And charged with first degree murder. She was also charged with three counts of identity theft and three counts of obtaining property by false pretenses, as well as 37 counts of embezzlement. Oh my God. So, by, this lady. I guess the, the identity theft and all is from using, you know, like getting credit cards in her stuff. husband's name. Oh, okay. Like that. Um, as part of a plea agreement, the charges for obtaining property by false pretenses were dismissed on the 30th of April, 2007. Misty pled guilty to the remaining 40 property offenses. However, she pled not guilty to the murder charge, and the case proceeded to trial on the 25th of June, 2007. As part of the state's case, Dr. Donald Jason, the medical examiner who performed. The autopsy testified that he found a gunshot entrance wound on the left side of the head, just above and slightly in front of the ear. Based on his measurements, the bullet passed through Quinn's skull from noise? left to right, 25 degrees and downward by 45 by 40 degrees. I'm sorry. I, so this iPad's kind of new. I don't know how to not have like stuff ring and stuff. I haven't. Let me turn. Lynn doesn't know how to use her iPad. I don't. I absolutely don't. I swear. Where do you go? I don't know how to use it. I just turned the volume all the way down. Maybe that'll help. Okay. So based on the measurements, the bullet had passed through Quinn's skull from left to right, 25 degrees downward and 40 and four by 40 degrees. Dr. Jason stated that in his opinion, Quinn was shot from less than six inches away. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was saying. If you're going to shoot him up close, then make up a story that's has you like, like right he next to it slipped on a yellow book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> don't make up a story and but the where... cat did it. Right. I mean, well, Jesus. Don't be a pussy. <laughs> Why are these people so bad at murder? Oh my god, I don't know, Rose. We need to start a we need to start a, a, a podcast. A podcast on how to <laughs> how to get away with murder. Yeah, Isn't we'll that, we'll stop doing this one and just yeah, do a, yeah. how to get away with murder. Yeah, that Detective Markham also testified over Misty's objection that he and other officers obtained a mannequin and based on the autopsy measurements and photographs inserted a wooden dowel into the head corresponding to the entrance and exit wounds. And the trajectory of the bullet. The officers then used the crime scene photographs to position the mannequin on the couch purchased for trial in order to recreate the position of Quinn's head as they found it. Detective Markham testified that based on the reconstruction, Misty could not have been standing where she said she was when the gun discharged. Detective Markham, Markham further testified that in order for the bullet to have entered Quinn's head at the correct angle, Misty would have to have been standing over Quinn at the arm of the couch, and at the time the gun went off, as opposed to standing at the middle of the couch, as she claimed. This is when the cat did it? This is, well, yeah. Either way, because at one point she said she was in the middle, like, in the front, and then she said she was in the middle in the back. Uh, approximately 45-degree downward trajectory of the bullet, and also indicated that the shot was fired from behind the couch rather than from the front, as she had originally first stated. Finally, Detective Markham testified that the photographs of the blood flow pattern on Quinn's head indicated that his head had to have been almost level or at same at a slight incline when he was shot. Based on the blood flow patterns and the reconstruction, the police believed that Quinn's head had been repositioned after he was shot, but before the police arrived. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so gross. Like, I can't even believe it. So she knew enough to do that, but... Yeah. Misty was charged with first-degree murder, embezzlement, and other charges related to her abuse of money and credit cards. The state also presented evidence that after Quinn's death... You ready for this? His survivors received $82,102.27. That's it? In government death benefits, ninety-one thousand oh. in life insurance, and twenty-four thousand one hundred and thirty-eight dollars and sixty-eight cents from a four hundred one k, which would have been a lot more if he didn't have to keep pulling out of that. Right, bitch. no kidding. In total, Misty received one hundred ninety-seven dollars two hundred one hundred one 
$197,240.95 as a result of Quinn's death. Oh, my God. Which is already, she's it's already in default. Right. I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it absolutely She doesn't. clearly didn't think it through. She's stupid. She's just like, I can't afford to pay my electric bill. I guess I got to shoot my husband in the head to get to $800. I mean, let's not try and get another job. Right. I mean, or <laughs> stop spending money. Yeah. So that information combined with the fact that she changed her story and things stopped adding up convinced the prosecutor to del- that she deliberately killed her husband to avoid telling him that she had bankrupt the family, which I'm like, it's really not that bad to do that. I mean, it's not great, but it's better than killing him. The yeah, trial sure. took place in July of 2007. During the trial, the prosecutor tore apart Misty's story about how she killed her husband. The prosecutor claimed that Quinn was shot from less than six inches away. They also claimed that Misty was lying about where she was standing when the gun went off. In addition, they stated that Quinn's head and body had been repositioned after Misty shot him. The prosecutor further argued that Misty knew that the electricity in their house was going to be shut down by Duke Power Company. This would have resulted in Quinn finding out the extent of her financial problems, so she had to kill him. The defense's claim that the gun went off from two feet away and that Misty was suffering from severe depression, so she could not possibly have made the decision to kill her husband, basically then argued that Misty was suicidal and her suicide attempt ended in Quinn losing his life by accident. I mean... That story is such bullshit. She it, should have gone with the original tripping over a book or whatever. Because <laughs> that second story where the cat shoots him. The cat shoots him. I mean. The cat was like, draw. Well, while she was praying. Yeah, while she was praying. <laughs> was the God's cat will. came in and the was like, no. Was like, the cat comes walking in, smoking a cigarette. He's like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. I want some good catnip, bitch. <laughs> Although the defendant did not testify at trial, Misty, she did um, present testimony. Uh, she did present expert testimony and testimony from family and friends. Dr. Paige Hudson, a forensic pathologist, testified that based on his review of Quinn's autopsy fo- photographs and reports, he believed that the gun was fired from more than two feet away. In addition, Dr. Jerry Noble, a clinical psychologist, testified that the that Misty suffered from depression, anxiety, and stress disordered disorders at the time of the shooting. Dr. Noble expressed that the opinion that Misty could not form a specific intent to shoot and kill her husband because she had severe depressed and anxious and uh, s- severe depression and anxiety affecting her ability to think, concentrate, and make decisions. Oh, shit. So she couldn't have planned it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She could plan to hide the bills, but she couldn't plan to kill her Right. Husband. I mean... Such bullshit. And she can steal money from apparently everyone. Everyone in the town, yeah. Right. So but she can't plan to kill her husband. So Misty's defense In a very a... shitty way, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Misty's defense suffered a final blow when the prosecuted su- prosecution submitted evidence showing that Misty stood to benefit almost $200,000 from Quinn's death. <sighs> Case closed. After deliberating just a few hours, a jury read the verdict. Just before noon, Misty Witherspoon looked as if she was about to cry but then regained her composure as each juror said he or she agreed with the verdict. Verdict. The verdict. The jury jury convicted Misty of first-degree murder. The trial court sentenced sentenced Misty to life imprisonment without parole for the murder conviction, followed by three consecutive presumptive range terms of 13 to 16 months for identity theft charges, followed by two consecutive presumptive range terms of six to eight months for the embezzlement charges misty misty um appealed the decision obviously 
After a child after a trial on July 16, 2007, Misty, who was found guilty, became known as the murdering mom, and she was sentenced to life in prison without any parole. Quinn Witherspoon's family, who had supported Misty throughout the entire trial, they believed her. Are you serious? They totally did. Said their stance hadn't changed, wasn't changed by the verdict. Quinn's sister, Sabrina Barnes, spoke about the impact of the jury's decision will have on the Witherspoon's young children. Quinn Witherspoon's father, Bob Witherspoon, said he still supports his daughter-in-law. I'm like, How oh can my God, they? these people must be just like the sweetest, like, Pollyanna family. Right. I just I mean... can't even. We're still behind her 100%, he said, in front of a courthouse. Bob Witherspoon, along with several other, several other supporters, were by Misty Witherspoon's side in court. She maintains that her husband's death with death death oh my gosh was an accident and is ready to put the entire ordeal behind her if they think this is a big celebration for a judicial system it's not because we have to go home and face those three children and she's got to face the rest of her life without them and then without her his sister said i'm sorry his father said the conduct- i mean that is really sad i get what they're saying uh, like- yeah no i do because like the kids yeah i mean the right. kids but, lost everybody but how fucked up was she if she what kind of a parent was she if she's willing to kill her husband? Uh, right. Her and children's so, father. So she didn't have their best interest in mind. Well, no, not at all, because the odds are that both of them were going to be gone for their kids' lives. Right. right. So she was sentenced to more than 20 years also for embezzlement and financial fraud related to her time handling money at the Baptist Church in Mooresville. I guess they decided to go ahead and throw the gauntlet in there. Uh, she sent she uh, Her sentences will be served concurrently. In May of 2007... Misty pled guilty to 37 counts of embezzlement and three counts of financial identity theft. She was also charged with getting credit cards in her sister's name. Oh, my goodness. And that's it, Rose. She's piece yep. of work. Um, I mean, I think her husband, not that I'm victim blaming at all, but they should have insisted, her family should have insisted that she go to therapy or something. But I guess in 2005. Yeah, like I don't understand huge, like but... her husband like i feel like she must have had like a hold on him like an emotional hold or something right sort. yeah like she was the dominant one and so he just did whatever she said i mean like, he was trying yeah. to make everything good and like I, i've right. definitely seen guys like that where he was just like i love my wife you know especially north carolina i love my wife she's the greatest you know and and and, know, and the embarrassment yeah and the embarrassment of right yeah they don't want to so, get divorced and like for him to not leave her after the second time he dug her out right right like for him to not do that, I feel like he must have really loved her and was like, didn't want probably, like you said, the embarrassment and thought he could fix it. But, and then like the poor guy just, and then the fact that his family still believes it. I just feel I know. So they must just, like I said, they must just be like severely, like not severely, like very, very nice people. And they're just. Don't believe like, she could do something yeah. like that. Um, so. Or maybe they don't want the kids to think that she would do something like that, you know? I swear I thought I turned it off. <laughs> I swear I did. I turned the volume all the way down. I don't know how to turn the sound off. But anyway. Um, That's really sad. Because now those kids don't have any parents. Yeah. Yeah. So defendant uh, Misty Keller Witherspoon appealed her first degree murder conviction for the shooting death of her husband, Quinn Witherspoon. Her sole argument on appeal is that the trial court should have excluded testimony using mannequin's head and newly purchased couch to refute her version of the events. She contends that the evidence constituted an experiment conducted under conditions not substantially similar to those at the time of the actual shooting. But the attorney general said, we conclude, however, that the use of the evidence was a demonstration not requiring substantially similar right, conditions. Right. Consequently, no error occurred in the... And nobody believes the cat 
they upheld the decision. Sorry. No, the cat was tried and found not, not guilty. The cat. Oh. He's the probably cat. in the other room like, bitch, what are you talking the about? Like, I didn't Great. do anything. Now I don't have a mom and daddy either, you stupid <laughs> bitch. Penelope didn't Penelope like that. Penelope is very Penelope. upset about it. So that was the story of the Witherspoons of Mooresville, North Carolina. That is... You know, I lived in North Carolina for a little while, Rose. A batshit crazy one. That is a batshit crazy. I mean, I just am... It, it makes me really sad for this poor man, like, and his kids. His kids, yeah. Yeah, and... But, you know, the thing is, is though, if you think about it, it's like, unless his kids, when they get older, and they... Well, they are older now, but when they... If they look into it themselves, they'll come to their own conclusion... But they've grown up being told that it was an right, accident. Right, right. And, so, and I'm sure they won't, they'll believe it was an accident. And that's, maybe it's better. Yeah, I know? mean, but, it doesn't, it's not going to change anything. No, I mean, but it's, but they'll look into it themselves and see all this evidence and be like, that fucking cat killed my dad. Yeah, the cat. Yeah, that's, you know that's how when, when the dog, when somebody, when you fart and you blame it on the dog? Yeah. Well, she, she <laughs> you kill somebody, blame it on the cat? Blame it on the cat. <laughs> so. I mean, if you're going to kill someone, come up with a better story, you know? Or just stick with the original story. Right. Don't just keep, keep saying, it. like, I don't know I don't, why the evidence looks like that. I don't want to give like anybody that. advice on killing people. Yeah, I don't either. But be a little smarter about it. All right. Well, let's take a break and refresh our drinks, All Rosie right. Posey. We're back. We've got Ooh, new drinks. What was that? I was like, we're back. Puberty. <laughs> you're going through puberty. puberty. Finally. It's time to change. You've got to rearrange. Oh, who you are and what you're gonna do. <laughs> do you remember that, Rose? You might be too young. I'm way too young for that. Rose, it was the Brady Bunch. Did you not watch them? Um, I watched some Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch? I didn't have a TV back then. We when? didn't have a TV growing up. We played in the streets, Lynn. The 70s? I was not born in the 70s. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> I was not playing in the streets in the 70s. Yeah, you weren't. Yeah. I'm an 85 baby. You're yeah. like a 34? Yeah, I was born in 1934. <laughs> <laughs> You're almost as old as my grandpa was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I went to the Fountain of Youth at some point in my life. <laughs> anyway. All right. So, so what kind of drink did you make? So I um, wanted Rose to stop and get... I was in the office today, so I wanted Rose to stop and get... Um, ginger beer because I wanted to make mules because we had mule. I had mules this weekend and I love them so much. But I don't she like would... them, so I'm glad what? you didn't make them. Yes, you do. Do I? You don't like ginger ale? I made something like a mule last week. Oh, okay. But, but ginger you put something beer... sweet in it, didn't you? But ginger beer is better because it's like it's definitely better than ginger ale. It has more ginger. Fl- you don't like you like ginger. Yeah, I like ginger. Yeah, you'll like gin. You'll like a you'll like a ginger. Okay, okay. The ginger. My grandma used to say a gingerella. <laughs> anyway, so um, today I made just Tito's and I have the little, I don't even know what they're called. It's little squeezy flavors that you put in like water or whatever. Yeah. And every, I don't use them very often because they, they're not so great for you, but sometimes I just get sick of drinking plain water. Yeah. So I have those and they're actually good for mixing drinks too because <laughs> I have a soda stream. So I mixed, um, the first drinks we had were strawberry watermelon, the little squeezy flavor um with tito's and seltzer and lime and the second ones were tangerine tito's seltzer and lime they're really good cheers surprisingly cheers to the best podcast in the country this weekend we were drinking um, my sister's made up drink of vodka hard seltzer and what else lemon so she usually had- she puts in Lemonade, but we didn't have lemonade. So, so she has two lemon. boys. So she needs more than just a hard seltzer, Rose's sister. She needs she needs a lot more. 
So yeah. she doesn't just have a hard seltzer. She has a hard seltzer and adds vodka to it <laughs> because she has two boys. Well, three, including her husband. Yeah. And she, she texts me that the night she made them. She's like, you only need one of these. <laughs> I can drink like three of them. But well, yeah, you know, she's a lightweight, you know, experience. Well, she was raising you while you were drinking. So that's she, true. She, you're definitely more seasoned. than she is. <laughs> so Okay. Anyway. You wanna, so what do you got for me, Rose? What do you got? What do you got? Mind? What do you got? All right. This is very sad. I cried like three times writing this. Rose, no. I'm sorry. But it's very sad. You'll probably know. <laughs> you should have made a double. Oh, my gosh. At the hotel this weekend, we got two doubles. Oh, my God. And it was like $56. But the, And they really weren't even that strong. They honestly. were not that strong, I, no. I, I honestly had a little teeny buzz probably three times over right. the weekend. I never was. Did you ever feel like. I felt, you know, Saturday night when we were drinking, like we kept drinking while we were waiting in line. Oh my, oh my God, that was funny. We had some hard seltzer. We had hard seltzer in our bag. had underwear while you were in line. It was pretty, pretty, pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> we had hard seltzer in our bag and we just, in vodka, and we were just pouring it into our drinks. And by I the mean, time we got in there, I was like, whoo. I had a good, I had a good, I buzz. had a good buzz that night. Um, yeah, but I never like I. But the night before, I, 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 I mean, I was buzzed, but I wasn't. Yeah, I don't even like getting drunk. Anymore. Not for fifty six dollars. I, I mean, no, my holy God. shit! I know. Then I was like, I'm supposed to tip them on top of this. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm wondering. Uh, well, Rose and I talked about it. I'm wondering if the limes in our cocktails at the bar aren't what got me sick because we shared all the food we ate. Like, if we didn't actually get a meal and split it. We, like, definitely shared. Right. We and we pretty had, much had all the same drinks except yeah. the one drink you had on Saturday night, which was right. a was mule, dr- right? Yeah. No, no. I was drinking a vodka soda. Oh, that's... Oh, the mule. I don't think it was the mule. I don't I don't know. That restaurant that we went to on Saturday night was a shit show because I was with Rose. We got shitty service. Our food yeah. didn't come out. Our drinks didn't come out. My drink came out and it was wrong. It was disgusting. Oh, no. That was Saturday. That was Friday night. Was that Friday Saturday night? night we went to... We had the tuna melt. Oh, that's right. At the little yeah. pub. Yeah. That that night well, you were drinking a meal, right? Yeah. And I, I thought maybe there was a lime in that. Yeah, but I I don't even think it was that though. I think it was I wonder if it well, that's true. It could have been that. I have no idea. But it you know, cross contamination can happen anywhere. So yeah. it could have been like my side of the sandwich was set on a cutting board that was That'd be your luck. Of course my <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Lynn's World. <laughs> So anyway, I'm like, I'm fine. I don't know what's wrong with I you. Know, and I was like, and we thought for sure Rose was going to get it. And I was like, oh, God, I hope she doesn't get it on the ride home. I but know. Never I thought I was going to get it at the drag brunch. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to run well, to the bathroom. That's why it was definitely something. Like, even my doctor said it was definitely something I ate. Because yeah. the fact that you didn't get it, it probably wasn't a bug. Because it was stomach bugs are insanely contagious. Right. And, and we were sharing everything yeah. up until, like, we were sharing drinks and everything. Yeah. So... Yeah, we I mean, I was even using, like, your lip gloss. We were not sharing a bed, ladies and gentlemen. We were not sharing Unfortunately a bed. for Lynn. Yeah. She begged and begged, and I was like, no, ma'am. Well, Rose doesn't like the fact that I purr in her ear when I sleep. <laughs> Some people call it snoring. I call it purring. <laughs> Don't even get me started on that. We're going to have to get a double sweet next I time. I apparently snore a lot worse when I'm sick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I went out to sleep on the um, pull-out sofa, which was basically <laughs> springs. <laughs> 
I laid there for about 10 minutes and I was like, fuck this. I'd rather listen to the snoring. I heard you play in the bed. I heard. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what was that noise? Oh my God, it was so horrible. It, they were like in my side. So I wrapped myself in my comforter thinking that it would like cushion and it and did. your blood stained comforter, Rose? Oh my God. <laughs> my comforter was blood stained. I know. Oh yeah. The first night. I was like. Oh my God! What is this? And then they, murdered. The cleaner left us tampons because she yeah, thought it was they our They came blood. and fixed the comforter after I complained about it and gave us a new one, and then left us tampons. I'm like, um, sorry, that was not for me. <laughs> there was no blood on the sheets. Oh my so God! I, uh, anyway, yeah. yeah. What a shit show. Yeah, I'm going to be sending that hotel a strongly worded letter, <laughs> as my friend Sherry would say, uh, tomorrow. So, okay. get ready. Okay, I'm going to be talking about Zikala Shah. So Zikala was born on the Yankton. Indian Reservation in Febu- on February 22nd, 1876 in South Dakota. Um, she spent her early years on the reservation with her mother, who was of Sioux Dakota heritage. And little is known about her father, but he was a French man named Felker. <laughs> Isn't that a funny name? Felker. Felker? Felker. Just like Falker. <laughs> That's yeah, what like I kept thinking of. Falkers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he abandoned the family when Zitkala was very young. <clears throat> Shocker. Have you told me where they're from? Um, Yeah. The Yankton Indian Reservation in South Dakota. South Dakota. Yeah. South Dakota. South Dakota. That's where you buy buy groceries and you put them in a bag. (laughs) (laughs) So um, her birth, her name at birth was Gertrude Simmons. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Isn't that so funny? That's so white. Why Gertrude Simmons? I guess she was born in that was, an indigenous community. Right, and her name, name was Gertrude, Gertrude Simmons. Do you think maybe her and she mom wanted her to be like maybe because like not like well maybe um, the dad named her. I mean maybe oh, that's he, I mean true. he was still around at that point. Yeah, that's true. Um, but she dis- decided to change it as an adult to honor her Sioux heritage. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is like she went through her whole childhood as as Gertrude. Gertrude, <laughs> poor girl. I wonder if they called her Gertie. They did. Oh, they that did. That was actually her nickname. I think that's yeah. a cute name. I think Gertie's cute. <laughs> that is cute. So when she was eight years old, missionaries from the White's Manual Labor Institute in Indiana came to the Yankton Reservation to recruit children for their boarding school. Do you know anything about these boarding schools, Lynn? No. The Indian boarding schools? I've never heard of them. Oh, really? Are you kidding me? Are you Are you joking with no, me? No, I'm not joking No, I've you. never heard Indian boarding schools? Yeah. No. Oh, my God. Why would I have heard of them? They're so... That's what made me cry, though. Did you, had you heard of them before this? Yes, I have. Huh. Um, I've listened to a bunch of podcasts about the boarding schools um, here and in Canada. So what they would do was basically take these children from these reservations, any kind of Indian or indigenous children, Uh and take them to these boarding schools to, like, get the Indian out of them. And that's their words, not mine. Like, pray away the gay? Yes, exactly. Basically. So her um, older brother had recently returned from such a school, and her mother was hesitant to send her daughter away. Zitkala, however, was eager to go. For children who had never been off the reservation, the school sounded like a magical place. The missionaries told stories about riding trains and picking red apples in large fields, and after debating the decision, her mother agreed to let her go. She did not want her daughter to leave but and did not trust the white strangers, but there was no schools on the reservation. And she wanted her daughter to have an education. So they'd go to these schools. There's no schools there. So they had no choice. They didn't have schools on the reservation at right. all? What year was this? Uh, it was, she was born in 1876. Oh, okay. okay. So 
I was like, wait, what? 18. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. 90 ish. Yeah, because we, you know, you just stolen all their land. They didn't have anything. Yeah. Right. And they did that on purpose, you know, so that they oh, could. Yeah. So as soon as she boarded the train, she regretted begging her mother to let her go. She was about to spend years away from everything she knew. She did not know English, and tribal languages were banned at the school. She would Ugh. be forced to give up her Dakota culture for an American one. And she had no idea that this is how it was before she left. So wait, so at this point, was she using her indigenous name or was she using... She's, yeah, she's using Gertrude. Oh, she's using Gertrude. Yeah, she used. Indig- she okay. started using Zikalasha when she became an adult okay. at some point. She becomes an author eventually in her later life, and she writes in one of her books, Soon we're, we were being drawn rapidly away by the white man's horse. When I saw the lonely figure of my mother vanish in the distance, a sense of regret settled heavily upon me. I was in the hand of, hands of strangers whom my mother did not fully trust. Oh, my. I can't even imagine her mother's, like... And she was how... I mean... I, she was eight. Oh, my God. Eight years old. I mean, I, I can't even... I just can't imagine sending my kid to a boarding school at all. And right. And this one... All the time. And this one is, like... It's basically, like, the pray away the gay. We're going to, you know, we're going to change... But much, much worse. We're going to change... We're going to change your... Who you are. Right. Yeah. Ugh. So, believe me, it gets much worse. So, whites, Indiana... Manual Labor Institute in Wabash, Indiana, educated Native American children as part of a government contract. So the government paid these schools. The school began admitting students in 1862 and was open for 34 years. And there's conflicting information on that. Some say it was only open for like 10, but 34 years I heard a couple times. So the goal of the school, you'll, you'll like this. Forced assimilation of Native children into white American society under the belief of kill the Indian, save the man. This training school was founded by Josiah White for the education of Native children to help them advance in society. That's what the schools were. They were basically stripping them of all their culture. Their culture. Yeah. So, and, and like, I have to wonder, like, did this guy really, so here's my thought. Did this guy really think he was doing a favor to these people? Or is he that much of an asshole that he just was like, I'm going to pretend like I'm doing them a favor and I'm going to. Well, they, like, didn't, they didn't see them as people. They saw them as like animals. They were like native savages to them. Yeah, because the they were people. used to living off the land. Right. Just because they don't buy, you know, canned goods in the grocery store doesn't right. mean they're savages. And so it means they're smart. He think he probably saw himself as like a savior. Like, mm. oh, I'm saving these children from being. I mean, maybe living in their you know horrible I don't lives. Know if I believe it though. So this people. this is one of the like big downfalls of native culture. Like this is one of the big downfalls with Native Americans. Oh my God. Are these schools because it was generational, you know? So once within the walls of the schools, children were subjected to physical and sexual abuse, forced to convert to Christianity and beaten for speaking their own language. Their heads were shaved. They often died from sickness and endured psychological trauma. At the height of the off-reservation boarding school era, more than 350 institutions opened across the United States. Attendance at these schools did not only mark a spiritual or cultural death for Native children, it very often marked a physical one. Dozens of children who lost their lives at these schools remained buried on or near the grounds of those institutions more than a century after they closed. Mm. So I first learned about these residential schools when I saw the movie in the movie Indian Horse, um, which is about like a Indian horse. Yeah, it's what? about a boy. I think it was in Canada. And um, he goes to the, one of these schools and he like plays hockey at the school. Like he builds like a hockey rink or something so they can play hockey. Um, but the teacher that comes out, one of the brothers that comes out to, you know, help them ends up sexually abusing him. And Ugh. he becomes like a pro hockey player, not pro, but he was like, and then it's about his life, you know, how none of that worked out because he 
he's been abused his whole life and oh it's just awful. That's so that's where I learned about it. But I've also listened to a few podcasts. Finding Chloe. Have you listened to that? No. Finding Chloe is really good. Um, it's about one of the girls that went to the school and then she died at some point. Mm-hmm. But she was like given to these um, adoptive parents and it's about her siblings trying to find her. It's really Ooh, sad. I'm going to add that to my list, girl. And Keeper Island. I just listened to that one. That's about a residential school in Canada. Keeper Island? Yeah, but it's spelled K-U-P-E-R, but it's okay. spelled, it's pronounced Keeper. Um, and that's about, I think, three or four boys who went to a school on Keeper Island and about their trauma. God, one of them died. Of on it. Yeah, there there are. It's really sad. On Keeper Island. I mean, like, when I typed in Keeper Island, there's, like... A ton of them. I mean, I don't know if they all... I mean, I don't know if they all mention it or what, but there's at least 14 that pop up. Really? It could be something... Like, yeah. The word island could come up in it, too. I don't know, but... So um, those stories are gut-wrenching stories of children who went to these boarding schools and were sexually, physically, and mentally abused. But it also shows how much the abuse and stripping them of their cultural identity has affected them, their families, and their tribes. So these... So I think it was Keeper Island that I was listening to. Um, one of the guys, they're, like, way older now, um, talked about his experience there. And he said... This, this was one of the things that made me cry. He said that in... So he was being sexually abused by one of the brothers. This was, like, a Quaker school. Uh-huh. And he said that in his... I think, I think he said second grade class, everyone was being... He knew that everyone was being sexually abused. Oh, my God! In a Quaker school? Yeah, I mean, this, these boarding schools were, hor- I mean, they were just predators, wanted to, they had like full access to all these children. So we are re recording the second half of my episode because Lynn decided to not record. Yeah. She didn't press the record button. I didn't press the record button, even though it's not on my side of the table, <laughs> and I have no idea how to use that software. I didn't press it. I didn't press it. Actually, Lynn made me pause um, to go see her mom, and when we came back, apparently I didn't press the record button again yeah. so i recorded my entire episode and yeah my mom was here my dr- entire story my mom was here dropping off my niece because i'm taking care of her this week while my sister's out of town and so well taking care of is a stretch because she's been out out there watching ninja turtles for the well she would be still watching if you'd push the fucking play <laughs> button or record button <laughs> so i just had to make her a very quick dinner which is not nearly as nice as what she gets at home, but yeah. it's all the more fun for Aunt Lynn because I let her watch TV and eat junk food. Watching Ninja Turtles. It's not junk food. I don't buy junk food, but... Yeah, but I had some and it was really good. Some so pizza. apparently Rose has learned another lesson about podcasting tonight. Can we learn any more lessons, Rose? So many lessons. <laughs> I'm so sick of lessons. Oh, You God. think I would have li- learned the record button lesson early on, you know? I hope so. I'm this drink. I'm already done with the drink, and we haven't. <laughs> we're on our third drink. I know we usually only have two. Now we're on our third one. Oh boy. Okay. If you know of anybody, ladies and gentlemen, that would like to be our recorder person, sound person, please let us know. We can't pay them anything, but Rose will pay them in sexual favors. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> But Lynn will. Penelope will give you. <laughs> yeah. We'll give you Penelope. You can have her. No. Hell no. <laughs> okay. Not my girl. So let me go on with my story. So the Indian Indiana Department of Natural Resources is heading up its own project to locate records and find the names of tribal identities of the native youth who died while at the one of the state's two Indian boarding schools. Through records housed at Earlham College, they were able to count 310 students from 12 different tribes who attended White's Indiana Manual Labor Institute. Or is mm. it called a when? So... 
Her arrival at the school was very traumatic. When the children learned that everyone would get a haircut, she ran and hid in an empty room. But when the staff of the school found her underneath a bed, they dragged her out. This is on the first day. They dragged her out, tied her to a chair, and cut off her braids as she cried. Growing up, she only saw people in mourning or people who had lost in battle cut their hair. And she later said of the traumatic event, I cried aloud, shaking my head all the while, until I felt the cold blades of scissors against my neck and heard them gnaw off one of my thick braids. Then I lost my spirit. Oh my gosh, and Indian people have such beautiful thick hair typically. Right? I know. Indigenous people, I shouldn't say right. Indian, have such beautiful thick hair. And ugh. I know, it's... I never realized it was like a, a sign of pride. Or, I mean, but it makes total sense. Yeah, it is. It and that's why their hair is so long, I think. Oh, wow. Now I feel like I need to like do like go down the rabbit hole. Like I, every time we do one of these, I feel like oh I need to. I, need I know to I need to. Like, <laughs> like I want to investigate that more. Yeah. I know you should definitely listen to those podcasts though because yeah I already they're I already very, uploaded it to my very interesting. Well, I uploaded it while you weren't recording a few minutes ago. Yeah, well it didn't matter, did it? Yeah, no, it didn't matter. <laughs> Um, That same day, her first day at school, her clothes were taken from her and replaced with the standard uniform everyone else wore. And when she began to cry over a bowl of porridge, an older student whispered, wait until you are alone at night. Zikala remembered how a fellow classmate was beaten in the snow by a pale-faced woman for not understanding the word no. The poor frightened girl shrieked at the top of her voice when she was hit. During the first two or three seasons... Misunderstandings as ridiculous as this one frequently took place, bringing unjustifiable frights and punishments into our little lives. That makes, that's like heart-wrenching for me because think about these little kids. They're eight years old. I think it started, these schools started at six years old. These little, little kids, they're just speaking their language. They know no different and they're being beaten for it. I mean. Well, and the thing is too, is that when they get there, they're probably all speaking different languages. Right. Because exactly. they're all from different yeah, tribes right. and different dialects and such. And so, and so it's not even like they can understand each other right. in, in like. That's ugh. very, that's true. I mean. I mean, I, I don't know that for sure. That's what I'm assuming. Just the thought of someone taking my, one of my kids and. Oh no. Beating them because they don't understand their like it's just heart-wrenching it's so disgusting so sad that people would ever do that you know so after a few years the school gave her permission to visit her mother during a school break and during the visit her mother encouraged her to abandon the school and stay at home but later she wrote that visiting home only made her sad because she now felt different than her mother and her brother and she felt that she no longer belonged at the reservation life at the school had changed her and she decided to go back to school oh no so they had stripped her of like, yeah, made her, her feel culture. completely yeah. right. They made her feel she didn't fit in the white culture. She didn't fit in her culture any longer. Mm. I mean, she didn't feel comfortable at her home. That's you know, so messed up. It's disgusting. So in 1895, she graduates and joins a teacher training program at Earlham College in Indiana, where she was one of the one of few indigenous students. And in 1900, she goes and teaches music and speech at the Carlisle Indian School, which is another um, boarding school, one of the most famous ones in the country. Where is that one? Do you know? Um, I don't. I did, but I don't remember. So she's at the school for less than two years when she begins realizing what's really going on. This is kind of when she realizes that what the schools are really about, that she sees a new generation coming in and they're having their hair brutally cut. She begins to question why the school is, is requiring the children to give up their culture um, just for an education. You know, mm-hmm. I think when she originally went to the school, she thought, oh, great, a free education. In right. This. Right. I mean, it was... Probably looked, she had no idea. It was probably 
sold to her as a privilege. Right, right. Yeah. That's exactly. And to the families. And they had no idea. So she learns that the government's paying the school for each child that's removed from the reservation. And that's when she realizes that the schools oh are designed God. to erase her people's culture. And it just, this is when her kind of change, her life changes a lot. Zikala's awareness of the intentions and corruptions of the Indian education system led her to reflect bitterly on her role as a teacher and on the civilized visitors who have passed through her classroom as if they were going through a zoo. So they'd bring like white people in to say, oh, look at all these great things we're doing for these. Like a dog and pony these show. These Indian kids. Oh yeah, right. God. Exactly. Oh, and it's so great. Great, look what they're doing. All white people, yeah. Yeah, praise. They didn't bring any Indians to show. <clears throat> or, I'm sorry, any indigenous people right. to show. Ugh. Yeah, praise God. Ugh. Praise be. Yeah, praise, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Same, same. Right. 100%. So she decides to leave the Carlisle um, school because she doesn't want to be a part of that any longer. I'm... Do you lose your place, Rose? I'm <laughs> totally lost my place. I lost my place like four times. <laughs> That's what's hard about using my iPad versus my computer. But yeah, I kept losing my place. So at the college, or at Earlham College, she hides in her dorm room. She cries in secret. She's just not treated well because she's Native American. She's not white, and it's mostly white students there. The white students were slow to seek her out, doing so only when they won the Indiana State Oratorical Contest, where she was a sole representative of Earlham College in 1896. Shows how like amazing she was, you know? Mm -hmm. She tells of the slurs against the Indian that stained the lips of our opponents and describes a large white flag with a drawing of a most forlorn Indian girl on it, which was supposed to be her. Under this, they had printed in bald black letters words that ridiculed the college, which they represented by a squaw. She characterizes mm. this slur as worse than barbarian rudeness and puts the savage shoe on the white foot that she believes it truly fits. She later returns to South Dakota, where her mom lives, and their relationship is strained. Her her mother later becomes a Christian. Um, wow. Yeah. And then she kind of sees it. She no longer... So as she gets older, she sees her mom as like... She realizes how strong her mom is and that she's this amazing Native woman and all she has all these wonderful things going for her, you know. And then she becomes a Christian and she starts to see her differently. It's just another, like, kind of white woman. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Right. She's, she's like, oh, the, my, my like mom's Like she sold starting, out, yeah. kind of. Yeah. So oh, instead of having the home, she's having more of what she learned in school. Right, exactly. Oh, no. So she takes a job at the United States Bureau of Indian Affairs and that supports her financially while she's doing working on her true passion, which is writing stories that promoted Dakota culture and values. And while working at the Bureau, Zikala meets fellow employee Raymond Bonin, who was also a Yankton Sioux, and they were married in 1902 and had one son named Raymond Jr. So the family moves to Utah and she works as a teacher. Um, Just like in like a regular school? In a regular school. Oh, okay. She works on the Ute Reservation where the children live at home and mm -hmm. just go to school. And then, oh, like they're normal. not ripped away from their parents? No, they're not. Oh, they're actually, you know, living with their parents. <laughs> um, so she starts writing an opera based wow. on her essays, which is she's the first indigenous person to write an opera. So, like, I have to wonder, like, what? I mean, maybe while she was in school, they made them listen to opera and stuff to make them, in quotes, more white. Right. But, like, where would she have learned about opera? Oh, I don't know. Like, she, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it was something that they forced right. on them in, in that school. Like, She did live in Boston for a while, so I wonder if she maybe traveled to yeah, that's, New York. Because that's not something that you typically would 
think of somebody right. an indigenous person. And this was but that's really I mean it's brilliant. Right. I mean, writing an opera is not easy. I tried once and it was not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so um because Many of her traditions and customs were passed down orally through music. Mm-hmm. She believes it's like a powerful way to kind of share her family's values and reach a new audience because, yeah, you know, at this point, who was listening to opera? Yeah, right. A exactly. bunch of white people, right? A bunch of like rich white people. Right. Yeah. So that's amazing that she did that. It just shows how smart she was. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like what, 100%. what she was trying to do and how she was trying to do it. She loves to write. She she channels all her frustration into writing and writes for national magazines like the Atlantic Monthly and Harper's Monthly. And in 1901, she publishes a compilation of her work in a book called Old Indian Legends. Ooh. I'd love to read that. I read a little bit of one of her books. And by a little bit, I mean like six paragraphs. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So she becomes a member of the advisory board of the Society for American Indians. And then she decides to move to D.C. so she can fight more for the indigenous people. Um, She works for the Society for American Indians there and American Indian Magazine. And, you know, she really changes things while she's there. Um, In 1924, she helped to grant citizenship to Native Americans. She helped in in that law being passed. Um, And in the same year, the Indian Rights Association assigns her to investigate alleged abuse of some of Oklahoma's tribes by the federal government. Ooh. And she writes an expose that results in a creation of the Merriam Commission. She wrote to revise the dominant white assessment of tribal culture, and she was able to do that and more. Wow. She was a badass. So at one point, one of her books, she describes her life. This is really sad. This this is one of the things that made me tear up. Having forgotten the healing in trees and brooks, she characterizes herself as a slender tree uprooted from my mother, nature, and God, shorn of my branches, the natural coat of bark, has been scraped off to the very quick. Oh. It's about her, her culture being stripped away from her. Yeah, just like down to the bone. Right. Oh, that's so sad. So, I, like, I hope that she's just like in my mind. I think to myself, and I, and I, I don't know that this is absolutely true in any way, shape, or form. And I could read some books and maybe figure it out. But I hope that she's like thriving on learning. Oh, right. I think this, she was. It sounds you know, like, she like was. fighting for indigenous people right. and and learning more about her culture and and her tribe, and, right? And everything they've been through, and like, like just taking that all in. I yeah. hope she, she's getting some gratification and some. Like solace from that, right? You know? I'm sure it, it did help her. I mean, I'm sure she, she, you know, from the residential school, she had a lot of oh my god, scar trauma, like trauma. Right. Yes, I mean, yes. so much trauma. I oh my god, and so did her fa- her whole family. I'm sure. So Zikala Shaw died in Washington D.C. on January 26, 1938. Throughout her life, she actively opposed the Americanization of indigenous culture. And her writing continued to have an impact on policymakers long after her death. So she died like almost exactly 30 years before I was born. <laughs> okay. A little, a little math. I was wondering you where you were going off. with that. <laughs> but I can, I can do math. <laughs> if I count by tens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, she was she was amazing. I mean, wow. for all the the trauma she went through, being ripped from her family at you know first her father leaving she at a young old. age, eight, and then being ripped from her family at eight and abused tremendously. I'm sure. Well, I can't even imagine. Like my niece is insanely smart. 
like obviously she has an education and she's in my other sister and I we laugh we say um are because my my other sister's kids are the same age as my kids and we laugh and say that she's way smarter than any of our kids were like just <laughs> yeah. at a young age yeah I mean right. our kids are all smart but at that young age she's just well she's an only child so she has like more individual attention right. and they're both very my boss's son is like that he's yeah. an only child too and so she's like so smart <laughs> and i just think about her like even with as what happens smart when you have siblings is? you just get a little dumber yeah, i guess i guess <laughs> i have four siblings so it's survival of the fittest right? <laughs> that tells you where i am it's like yeah and, and you're the youngest siblings. so it's like your mom yeah. didn't give a shit she's like oh, as long as <laughs> right. she lives that's all that matters exactly but and then she left that on your sister so it, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Christina, it was Christina's Christina's responsibility. <laughs> but the thing is, is that um, I feel like I think you know when you when you hear about eight years old, like it's hard to imagine it because my kids are way over that, right? Yeah. I mean, your kids are closer to those ages, obviously. But I think her, and I think I think about my niece, and I think about how with her age, I think how would she ever like? There's no way she could she would function, and one because she's in just very smart and she would like they'd send her back because they'd be like wait she's just just giving us too much of a hard yeah. time because she would tell them how to do everything because <laughs> they're doing it wrong but at the same time i think you know a child who is eight years old without an education just like it's just like um what's had basically this little person just dying for information right, right? they're just like waiting to absorb right, all exactly. this new information. Right, exactly. And so excited to go to school. Yes. And and she probably thought, oh, my God, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to learn new things. And then she got there and it was slapped in the face by right. bullshit, basically. Just complete bullshit. So in that Keeper Island podcast, this is really hard to hear, but one of the guys who was talking about his experience at the schools was saying that he, he was like 15 or 16 when um, the brother started molesting him. And he's like, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know. I didn't know what if it was wrong or what, because I had no he had had no sexual experience. He had no education, sexual education or anything. And so he's like, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know if it was wrong. I didn't know how to feel. I just know that I felt weird. Right. And uncomfortable and. Oh, I've heard that so many oh times. Oh my god! With like kids like, that are yeah, because they, they're like, well, they might do something that kind of makes me feel good, right? But then I'm like, this is not. I don't feel like this is right. They get like the right. hair in yeah. the back of the neck thing, but they're yeah. too young to understand, to listen to that, right? Right? They yeah. don't understand that, and it's just, it's disgusting. Ugh. I know that really like I just. I wish we could release the name of the people who did that, so we could just. What people? The people, the people that did who did it. it way back then. Just oh, so. they did. He actually, he was oh, wow. the only brother that was prosecuted. Ooh. Um, wow. Yeah, of all the schools, though. He was the only person that was prosecuted oh for sexual so abuse. So must, he must have been absolutely disgusting. If he, he was, was disgusting. Oh, he, I, can't, I can't hear it He now. molested I'll, so many kids. I'll have nightmares. Don't talk about it. I know. It was, it was really, really hard to listen to. Yeah, I can't. No, I can't do that. Not... Not at this time of night. I'll <laughs> I know. Definitely have nightmares. <laughs> I know. It was. But like, I feel like um, women like her, like Sojourner Truth that we did last week, I feel like they are at the, the very ground level, the bottom, like the very bottom of like, what, what do you want to call it? Like rock, they're at rock bottom. Right. And they dug their way out of it. Right. And persevered. And I think to myself, I'm a strong person. You're a strong person. Like we both have persevered through a lot of bullshit in our lives. 
But nothing I, like that. I, could, I mean, nothing like... I can't imagine ever... Like, I feel like I would give up in this situation. But these women... Ugh, they're so badass and I love it. I know. I love it. Like, I want to put a... <laughs> maybe like a 13-year-old put a poster of them on my wall. And be like, <laughs> you're the best! You know, it just... It's so cool. Yeah, it it's is really so cool. amazing. I, yeah. They are truly badass and... Yours was a crazy bitch, but mine was badass. This yeah, time. So this this week, <laughs> this mine week. was crazy bitch. She was crazy, the batshit crazy. Yeah, I mean to hear the like the, the difference between the two women is like yeah, it's oh my god, um, it's day and night. I know, like but, yeah, this the, my woman was just an idiot that took advantage of everything she had in her life. Your woman was had nothing and made everything. And made everything it. right, right. So I mean, she literally had nothing. I mean, she put my woman to shame. Ten times over. Yeah. Well, so your woman was crazy. She cray cray. She cray cray. She cray cray. Well, it's been a great episode, Lynn. Yeah, it has. Now that it's finally recorded, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> if Lynn would press the record button. I know. I know. I got to push it from the other side of the table. <laughs> so hopefully, you guys will be in our studio next week. Fingers crossed, John. Love you that you bring all the stuff down to make our studio perfect. Um, so we want to remind you, as we did at the beginning, I think, please love us, like us, only, only great loves on any platform you're listening. Leave a comment. Tell us your, I think I said at the beginning, your bra size Something about or your favorite jo- bra your favorite brand jock strap. or your jockstrap brand if you're a boy. I mean, I don't know who wears a jock, jockstrap anymore. You said Chris wears one every day to work. <laughs> It's only in the bedroom, Lynn. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You like those, huh? They're pretty weird. Yeah, yeah you're a weirdo. <laughs> anyway, just whatever you want to put in the comments, feel free. But it, apparently, if you put something in the comments, it helps increase our, um, it bumps us up. So we are doing this because we love it. We're best friends and we're excited to share all these great stories with you about amazing women. Unordinary women. Unordinary women. Yeah. No unordinary woman now. N O W. Thanks, guys. All right. Love you. Bye.